You're listening to WCOM LP 103.5 FM Carborough and Chapel Hill. It's a Tuesday, it's five o'clock, and that only means one thing. It's time for another round of Snarky Faith with your host, Stuart Deloney. This is a space where we irreverently wrestle through life, culture, and spirituality, all with our heads in the clouds, our tongues in our cheeks, our hearts in our sleeves, and our feet on the ground. At Snarky Face, the questions or even the answers are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host, Stuart Deloney. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another round of Snarky Faith. I'm your host, Stuart Deloney, and Snarky Faith is radio for the spiritually disenfranchised. If you've had enough of the insanity of Christianity, you have come to the right place. Here at Snarky Faith, we are all about finding a sane faith grounded in reality and working to make the world a better place in tangible ways, if it's possible. This is not a zone for spiritual escapism, Sunday school answers, or Christianese. We're here to call out religious BS and look for better ways forward. If you can handle your conversations about faith with copious amounts of... Sarcasm. And also a little bit of this... Then you've come to the right place. Welcome home! On today's show, we're going to be sitting down, having a good chat with our friend Keith Giles, author Keith Giles, who is going to be telling us all about his new book, Jesus Unforsaken. But before we descend into that, we've got a quick couple bits of housekeeping to bring to your attention. This broadcast and all past podcasts can be found at www.snarkyfaith.com and wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, YouTube, we're there and everywhere. Just look for Snarky Faith. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe. And if you're feeling particularly generous, drop a review over on Apple Podcasts, too. It helps get the word out to new listeners, and I appreciate it. If you want to interact with more with the show, you can find me and the Snarky Faith page over on Facebook. Drop us a line at questions at snarkyfaith.com. And there's even a snarky hotline if you, if you want to leave a message. That'll possibly end up on the air. The number is 919-525-1570. 919 525 1570. So I know we're very excited to get to Keith, as we should be, because it's Keith freaking Giles after all, right? And and you should be excited to listen to Keith because the interview is going to actually be kind of covering two basic topics. One that we had gotten to about the inerrancy of scripture a little ways back when we had the episode talking about the new documentary, 1946. After that, after that, after that conversation I'd had with the with the director, Rocky Roggio, a bunch of people were asking me more questions about translations of scripture. And I decided, yeah, 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 I I can talk about it, but I know someone who would talk about it <laughs> with a lot more authority than I would. Yeah, that's Keith Giles. And also Keith's gonna be talking about his forthcoming book too on the show. But I wanted to to descend into something that's not as snarky and not as fun and and not as Full of frivolity as we usually begin our show. Um, no Christian crazy today. Aw, sad times. But I wanted to talk about some, some personal stuff that's going on with me and some stuff that's going on in the world around us. And, and how they've both kind of been making me think about life and mortality and how we're living it. So I'll, 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 step, uh, I'll step into my personal realm and then I'll step kind of into what's happening larger in our country. This last weekend, we, my wife and I got one of those phone calls you never want to get. Um, when you hear your kid's been in a car accident. 
And um, our oldest had gotten into a car accident and thankfully, thankfully, thankfully was fine. But in those first couple moments when you're hearing about it and you're trying to get all the details and information, it's, it's absolutely terrifying. And so I'm driving to the scene of where it happened and to get to my son. And, and so I remember like, I'm conflicted in my head going like, ah, as a dad, you're like, ah, the car is probably dead, right? You kind of have that. And then like, oh my gosh, is he really okay? He said he was fine on the phone. And the funny thing that just popped in my head, and it was, this was off of something, it was a quote or something, or a meme or something people had posted a, wh- a while back. And, and, and it's something that stuck with me. But it was, it was kind of speaking to a posture of how, how we're supposed to be towards people. And it, it went something like this, saying something like, the, be the person that you needed at that age to someone else. So meaning that, like, who does my son, like, if I, that was me. Because not that I didn't total a car at 16 and then probably again <laughs> at, at 20. Yeah, yeah. But be the person, be the father, be the person that I, I would have needed when I was in that space. And that, like, it took me out of my own situation. And it just really was able for me to just go there and just put my arms around my son and just tell him, yeah, I love you. And cars can be replaced, kids can't be replaced. And in those moments when you just kind of hear that kind of stuff, it really, really, really begins to make you question about what's important in life. And having those brushes with your kids just kind of makes you pause, your heart stops, and you kind of just, <gasps> and you just stop breathing. So I'm still kind of, I feel like I'm still like just walking out some of that trauma. He's got some bruises and stuff, but the boy is strong and he's okay and we're going to be good. But the second thing that happened, which is been part of the national consciousness late, lately in the conversation, was was a shooting that, that took place in kind of northwest suburbs of Atlanta. And, and let, me, let me just get to some of the facts first. I, I would assume most people have heard about this, but um, Robert Aaron Long, a confused and troubled, troubled individual, went on a shooting spree across Atlanta last week that left eight people dead at three different spas. And these were, these were like Asian spas that he targeted because as we, as the story begins to unfold, it kind of begins to unpack some of his background as being a evangelical Christian as a Baptist and about, okay, first of all, first of all, first of all, one thing that I've hated happening is, is watching how this is justified in many ways saying he had sexual addiction and anything else. No, this, this is a, this is a, this is a hate crime. He, he, he premeditatedly drove to three different spas across the metro Atlanta area and, and shot them because he saw, he saw these women as temptations. He saw them as sexual objects and in his own weird, twisted, evangelical mind, believed he needed to take people's or his temptation away in, in a very evangelical way his own, he only cared about himself and went and killed other people. Now, people are trying to twist this and say this isn't necessarily about race, but it really is. If, if you're in a place where, where, where your evangelical upbringing has taught you that, that sex is, is dirty and terrible and taboo and that anything that time that you think about pleasure or sex, that you are wrong and evil and it's from the devil, and then, then that any time that you are sexualizing stuff, well, that's evil and from the devil, and then I'm just tired of trying to even make sense of the mess that 
evangelical church has caused. Because this kid, this kid, I say kid, is this young man, um, was uh, attended Crabapple First Baptist Church. I, I, I have a connection to this church, which makes it even weird, because I didn't even realize that when I started digging into the story, I was like, oh, wow. Like, I, I grew up in, in the Southern Baptist Church, and I grew up playing basketball with RAs, which was kind of like the like Christian Boy Scouts, and we had a basketball league, and I remember I, I played there year after year after year. Crabapple Baptist Church was a place we played basketball year after year after year, and then hearing that hearing he was a part of that weird Baptist subculture just makes me pause. And let me also go ahead and quote from the Washington Post, because I thought they summarized a lot of this up fairly well in a short amount of words. They said this, that experts this week have said the mentality Bayless described is common with evangelical purity culture, which teaches that sexual desire outside marriage is sinful and those who fail to control their lusts are sometimes considered sex addicts. The church's bylaws asserted that adultery, fornication, and pornography are sins and offensive to God. And in both 2019 and 2020, Long had spent time at Hope Quest, an evangelical treatment facility nearby in Ackworth, specializing in sexual addiction, pornography, as well as gay conversion therapy. That facility is less than a mile from Young's Asian Spa, the site of Long's first attack on Tuesday evening. And we don't even have time to talk about the fact that the church actually has come out publicly saying that they have rescinded his membership because he's a renegade Christian, even though he's a renegade Christian because of the garbage and the bad theology that he'd been fed year after year after year. And again, I'm not taking anything away from this sick, twisted individual that was racist, that, that saw women as sexual objects. I'm not taking anything away from that. But I am saying that this guy was fucked up and his church was also fucked up. Which is why we need to have great conversations with guys like Keith Giles. Because of shit like this. Because when we read scripture, when we read scripture through other people's warped lenses... When we read scripture through other people's warped lenses that are meant to lead us in certain directions, away from what scripture was actually telling us to do, we get problematic. We get twisted theology. We get, we get, we get twisted systems of church that have nothing to do with Jesus. They have nothing to do with liberation. They have nothing to do with new life. No, they don't. They have to do with control, and they have to do with bad readings of scripture. So, hey, let's stop that. Let's stop it. Because who wants to read scripture incorrectly? Who wants to read it in bad, misogynistic uh, ways like that? Not me. Not me. Especially not because we're about to talk to Keith Giles right now about it. So here we go. Joining me again is Keith Giles. Keith is the writer. He's a prolific writer of the Jesus Un series, the best-selling series. He's also host of the Heretic Happy Hour. He's a Patheos blogger. And like last time we had him on, Keith also runs tons of different, uh, what'd you say, teachings, uh, seminars, uh, conferences, yeah. kind of all of the above. You're, you're a man of many hats. Yes, I do. I'm a very busy man. <laughs> You're very busy man. Good, Keith. Keith, welcome back. How are you doing, Keith? Uh, Stuart, man, I'm doing great. It's great to talk to you. Thank you for having me back on. Uh, and I'm excited to talk about this uh, subject today. This is a lot of fun. 
Yeah, so giving you some context and, and our, some of our, re, uh, our listeners some context, we had done a show with, the, uh, with Rocky Roggio, who is the producer and director of the 1946 uh, documentary about the mistranslation that changed scripture. Rocky was on talking a lot about this, and then I had lots of people asking me questions. And so I was like, okay, I can answer some, and then I decided to do more research, and I just I kept coming up on articles I've already read of yours. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I figured, why why do I regurgitate uh, Keith Giles instead? Let's have Keith Giles regurgitate Keith Giles. Oh, yeah, there you go. That at least sounds better. I'm not good at doing your voice. Um, well, regurgitating so, isn't, doesn't sound so fun. But That's uh, true. That's true. Okay, <laughs> Keith Giles being the Keith Gilesness on this. So There you go. Um, yes. Uh, and, and, and we'll talk about several other things in this. But I wanted to, yeah, hop in on talking about this idea of, uh, of how, in many ways, we have weaponized scripture through mistranslations. Yeah. Well, it definitely is something <clears throat> that, I mean, I, I just sort of tripped on some of this stuff, you know, in my own studies, sometimes working on a book, sometimes doing a study, you know, in a, on a certain doctrine or topic. And then it's always been a shock, you know, for example, to be reading along and, and realize, oh, hey, wait a minute, you know, my English translation says this, but when I go and look at the Greek, that's not what it says at all. It either says something like radically different or, oh, my gosh, there's a word missing. Mm -hmm. Or wait a minute, that word was changed, um, you know. And when you start noticing, when, you know, first you just start noticing those little things. But then over time, what I start seeing is a pattern that, huh, the kinds of things that keep getting, quote, unquote, mistranslated um, seem to be almost on purpose. Like, huh, like we are... Because again, many many of the kinds of things that I notice are verses that um, tend to be used as clobber passages against women or against the homosexual community or you know uh, against sort of um, hierarchy in the church and promoting hierarchy in the church and power in the church and things like that. So when you start noticing that that's the pattern, you start to think, I don't think this is a, an honest mistake. It really does kind of feel. Um, like there was an agenda that there was an attempt to, um, yeah, to sort of, yeah, as you said, weaponize the scriptures to point a certain way, to support a certain way, a certain kind of theology. And um, that isn't a good thing. So I, I've been trying to write blog articles and books and stuff to sort of expose some of that because uh, I just feel like Christians need to know this. They need to be aware of it. And what's interesting too, and and I've I've got several different passages we're going to talk through that you have that you've written about here. Um, yeah. But what what continues to just blow my mind is is not just how it's used in that. It 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 almost feels like these passages put together, these clobber passages, almost create movements. Um, yes. You know, they're almost like attached together to create like holistic movements away from a subject or to condemn a subject or to yeah. silence a subject. And. And I don't think that God ever meant any of this to be weaponized. <laughs> no. No, not at all. No. And, and, no, not at all. And, and so, like, when we begin to talk about this, so one of the questions I think that came up from folks uh, when uh, Rocky was talking about, especially, like, uh, uh, Romans 1. Yes. And, and let's begin to talk a little bit about some of the ways that Romans 1 has been used to be able to smack folks down and hasn't even been translated correctly because of that. Right. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of problems with using Romans to support kind of these clobber passages uh, condemning homosexuality. Mm -hmm. So one of them, one of them is some assumptions that we make when we read Romans chapter one. Um, 
that are wrong. I mean, uh, I wrote a blog post where I just where I just said flat out, Romans doesn't condemn homosexuality, and people are like what? And then I just walk people through it. Okay, start at Romans chapter one, verse one, and just start reading through the, what is Paul saying and how is he saying it? What is the, what is his problem? What is it he what is he upset about? Well, it's idol worship. It's pagans who are worshiping created beings and, and you know things that they have they have fashioned with their hands, idols of wood and stone. And then, then he goes into the way, the things that they do when they're worshiping these idols, which are, do involve some sexually, um, you know, objectionable things that we're like, well, what's going on? This is kind of odd, weird. Like, you know, in the temple, you walk into this temple to one of these gods and they're having, they're performing sex acts, right? And and what he points out in Romans, yes, he does talk about um, these same sex uh, acts being performed by women on women and men with men. But again, what's in view is, the worship of these idols. So what I what I try to help people understand is I, I just do a simple little thing. What if what if um in Romans chapter one, Paul starts off talking about, you know, how wrong it is to worship created of these false gods and to, to worship these idols, to do so using sexual practices. And what if the very next thing was um heterosexual practices? Because by the way, there are there were pagan deities that you know, the, the sex practices were male and female, uh, heterosexual practices. Would you therefore assume, ah, God hates heterosexual sex? Mm-hmm. No, of course you wouldn't. But that's what we do in Romans chapter one. We say, well, because he's describing uh, same sex acts, therefore God hates these kinds of things. But we wouldn't make the same assumption if it was heterosexual sex. Why? Because we enjoy heterosexual sex and we don't think there's anything wrong with that, right? So in other words, we bring a bias with us into Romans and assume, aha, this is this is really what he's upset about. Um, and also what I point out is like, I know lots of people that are gay and none of them are gay because they started off worshiping, you know, Diana or Zeus <laughs> or, or Pan, uh, right? Um but, but see, that's what it would have to be to fit with what Paul is saying. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one thing. Again, I, I I really don't think that the point of Romans one is a condemnation of uh, same sex, uh, you know, uh, attraction. And even then, um, we can get into the minutia of that if you want to. We can get into this. But but here's the other thing that gets missed, and I think this is the bigger picture, not just of Romans one and what what Paul seems to be condemning in Romans one, but the entire book of Romans which is if you don't understand that what Romans is, is it's employing something called prosopopoeia. What is that? Prosopopoeia is an argumentation practice that Paul uses in Romans. He does it in a couple other letters as well, but no more obviously than in Romans, where uh, prosopopoeia is basically an argumentation technique where you, you, um, you assume the voice of an imaginary uh, opponent. Right. So in Romans, what's happening is Paul is uh, we can say we can call this person Saul, the teacher of the law, and then Paul, the apostle of grace. And there are two opposing viewpoints that Paul will present again, what he knew as Saul, the Pharisee before he was converted. Right. That what he knew about the law, the argumentation he he would have brought prior to you know his conversion experience. And he argues from the law a certain way of looking at things. And then as Paul the Apostle, later a few verses later, he'll say, yes, but what about, but he'll contradict that. He'll argue back and show how that's wrong. So it's a back and forth debate between two people. 
Okay. And if you don't get that, and most Christians do not get that, what you end up doing is turning to a passage in Romans, reading it, pointing to it and say, aha, see, right here, Paul says, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But typically what you're doing, what Christians will do is when they're quoting Paul, they're actually quoting Saul, the teacher of the law. And if they just keep reading a little bit, Paul's going to refute that and contradict that and tell you how that's wrong. Mm -hmm. So if you don't get that, even that's really even what's happening in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 sets up this big, long thing that appears to be a massive condemnation of uh, idol-worshiping pagans who are doing these objectionable sexual practices that are, oh, they're so distasteful, and oh, we can't believe, oh, this is, can you imagine, this is so horrible. But then notice how he t suddenly turns it back on you. If you're reading it and going, yeah, that's right, oh, they're horrible, yeah, get those people, eh, yeah, we don't like those people— then he suddenly turns it around and he says, and by the way, you're just like them because you also break the law the same way they've broken the law. You also are not living according to this standard that you want to hold them to. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, whoa, wait a second. So he's trying to expose your own judgmental attitude against people who are not like you, who don't believe the way you believe. And, and he starts going back and forth in, in, in Romans in, in this way. And so this is one of the fundamental reasons why most Christians misunderstand the whole book of Romans, and they miss that this is what's happening in the book of Romans. And again, why I stand by the, the my argument that I really don't think Romans chapter 1 is a condemnation of what we would call, you know, two people of the same sex who love one another, care for one another, and lovingly enter into a mutually beneficial relationship of love and support for one another. Mm -hmm. That's not, you don't find, you will not find that being discussed in Romans chapter one. That's not what's in view in Romans chapter one. Now, and I, I'm curious, just, just for your opinion on this, that, because I see this, I see this time and time and time again, where, where we, we see people interpreting scripture out of context, um, without applying any context to it, and just, just almost being able to, uh, yeah, handpick through scripture, just kind of do nugget theology, where you're pulling up little <laughs> nuggets here, yeah. and, and, and it tends to drive me crazy, but, but, what I will say is, it's it's a, it's a prevalent problem um, yes. that, that we tend to use scripture out of context, that we don't try to read into what was the intent of this book, what was the intent of the author, what was also happening in the time, all you know, all these other things that, that play into it. What kind of piece of literature is this? You know, what form is he writing in? And do you feel because I, I've I've uh, I, I say this, I, this is like a long question, <laughs> but I remember this because okay. I, I remember it was at. Um, I was, I was close to finishing seminary and I could take a free class at a denomination that I was associated with. So I was like, ah, free class, take it. Yeah, it's a free class. Um, and I remember it was a, um, it was a, uh, I think this was like, this was like a bachelor's like degree level class, but I, but they were able, if I wrote more, they could give it to me as a master's degree level class. And I'm sitting in there with a bunch of like people that were, that have not really been through a whole lot. And the professor asked, he's like, so how do we interpret scripture? And so no one's saying anything. It's like, well, if we start with context. And he got so angry at me for asking that question, uh, which is really funny because I was like, oh, okay, this is going to set the tone for the rest of the class I'm doing. <laughs> oh, I'm wow. going to shut up and I know what kind of papers I need to write so I can get out of here um, right. and get my credit. But it was one of those where it was almost this idea of like, well, context, you can use context to justify about anything, which is crazy ridiculous yeah you yeah. can use you could use nugget theology to justify anything i mean i could yeah yes. i could use i could use harry potter to justify anything if i'm taking out like sure. <laughs> lines of scripture but is do you feel sorry the long way for this question is do you feel like this is more intellectual laziness 
on behalf of people that teach, or do you feel like there is a definite edge towards directing people in a certain mindset and direction? Yeah. Well, I just think there's, um, it's a big question. There's theology. There's a way of looking at the scriptures where, um, you will reach a point where uh, it's good enough, right? Like, Oh no, that supports what I already believe. Good. We're stopped right there. And then if anybody challenges it, well then we'll just accuse them of being some kind of liberal progressive. You Mm -hmm. don't really understand, you know, blah, blah, blah. You're not rightly dividing the word of truth, brother. Um, you know, they're not really interested because I mean, that's, I'll just say, like, that's what I've encountered when I've attempted in good faith to have a, cr- a conversation with another Christian, and I try to point out some of these things that, you know, we're going to talk about, like, hey, did you know that that word is translated wrong? Or did you know this is, like you said, you know, uh, the, the, the idea that the word homosexual never appeared in any English translation until 1946, and rather than going, really? Oh, my gosh, show me. I have no idea. They're not interested in that. That doesn't concern them. It doesn't upset them. I mean, and I don't get that. Like, I, I would say, you're you're the one who's the conservative. You're the one who's like the Bible. It's all about this. And, and when I explain to you that, no, no, do you know that Bible translators went in and there's words that were changed, things that were added that weren't don't belong there? And, you know, I, I would expect a conservative Christian, a truly conservative Christian to be like, well, that's horrible. We got to fix that. Let's sound the alarm. Let's go back and change it to what it should be. Mm-hmm. The reason they're not concerned, the reason why that doesn't bother them, is that the changes that they we're talking about are changes that support the things that are foundational for them. So they're they're threatened by that rather mm-hmm. than like, oh wow, no, the Bible is just so important. We got to make sure no one corrupts and changes anything. Mm-hmm. Um, which I find really odd. I do find that that, that was kind of why I wrote that blog post about how like. Uh, a lot. How I, I found it shocking that even a lot of evangelical Christians um, are totally comfortable with when you tell them that the scriptures were edited and changed very recently in many cases. Um, it doesn't seem to bother them, and it shocks me. Well, and and it, and it, it well, you even mentioning those kind of topics, I think it, it ends up opening in their mind. And I don't know if it's in their mind, but it gets close to the sacred cows of like inerrancy. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, or you know, it's, it's all divinely inspired. So the way. Keith. But what's inspired, see, is like, I mean, e- even if we disagreed on that, like, okay, let's just say you're right. Yeah. So is the error, is the is the 1946 edition also inspired? So that means it wasn't inspired before that? I mean, when what's yeah. inspired the Oof. at what point is yeah. it inspired before the change or after the change or when they or when they change it back? I mean, yeah. you know. Yeah. Which is which is funny because that is probably the because like when I, I was I, when I was talking with that professor he told me you know the, after class that it's just a slippery slope. Well, the idea of what you're asking, I feel like that's a sl- more slippery slope than yes. actually saying what did Paul mean? What did Paul actually mean? Wouldn't you yeah. care? Shouldn't you care? Like, see, to me that that should be the most important thing. Again, like you said, and, and again, a huge red flag if somebody you say it's about context, cultural context. Like what did what did the what did the writer mean? How would people at that time have understood it? Like if you don't care about that, you're now you really don't really care about finding out what it really says. Like again, you're you just wanted to say what you wanted to say, and um, so yeah. If you're sitting in a church where someone is uh, is afraid of those kinds of things, and and they're out there, uh, you might want to consider or reconsider whether or not you want to be there. Absolutely, and 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 kind of moving on a little bit in this conversation too. You done and which we talked a little bit weaponizing scripture through this, but also changing the plot, like changing the narrative. 
Yes. Um, it was one I think you did fairly recently, actually, uh, uh, which I really appreciate. was how, uh, over on Patheos, how evangelicals change the Bible to support their beliefs. Yes. Uh, and, and being even moving into this, I loved one of the bottom lines that you had said this. You said that, you know, one of the bottom lines was they don't care that the text was changed because the changes uh, made support their beliefs, which is what you're saying yep. here. Um, yeah. And, and and do you remember you you've re- re- written this recently? So hopefully I'm not putting you on the spot. No, but, no, no. Uh, but I, I appreciate it also in this it, moving this away from even just the debate about um, homosexuality within the Bible, even how you even uh, talked about Philippians two uh, ten through eleven, how the yes. word gladly is even removed. Yeah, you know, th- this is even a, a different situation where we're not necessarily it, but how much that even changed. Yeah, a very huge mindset. Can you unpack that a little bit too? I, that, oh, absolutely. I no, to me, this was a big, big deal. Um, well, the first time I, I came across this, and it might have been, I might have come across it. David Bentley Hart is one of my heroes, and I, he did a, he recently did a new translation of the New Testament. So this may have been where I found it. Um, but uh, it, yeah, Philippians chapter two, verses ten to eleven, very, very famous verse. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know we we all know the verse. You know. Um, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue in heaven and earth will confess um, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's Philippians 2, 10 through 11. And um, I had always, and if you read it in English, like your most English Bibles, will simply say every tongue, uh, you know, every knee will bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, I had always been taught growing up as a Southern Baptist, that verse was quite often quoted, yep, uh, that verse was quite often quoted in more in the context of Jesus is going to come back one day and then there all the unbelievers are going to suddenly realize, Oh crap, we were wrong. And then in that moment, almost through clenched teeth, yes. right? Just begrudgingly, uh, you know, this begrudgingly, yeah. you know, Jesus is Lord. They're going to bend the knee, but not because they love Jesus, but just because it's like, it's now like, Oh, Darn it, we were wrong, and yeah, he's right, but we were, we're angry, right? Mm-hmm. And but and then right after they right after they confess Jesus is Lord and bow the knee and bend the knee, they're going straight off to the lake of fire uh, <laughs> <laughs> because they were trip. wrong. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of the way I always understood it. So anyway, here's what here's the shocking thing that that the way that verse should be uh, translated in English is this. It said it actually should say this that. Um, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should gladly confess, gladly confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Now, that radically changes the tone of that verse. What it's saying is one day every knee will bow and every tongue will gladly, joyfully, exuberantly confess that Jesus is Lord. Mm-hmm. And that really changes um that's like a that's a promise of like wait a second you're kind of saying one day we're all gonna get it everyone's gonna realize it joyfully not not in terror and fear or dread but in joy and so here's the reason why and let me just get into the Greek real quick uh, the the word for confess that your English Bible says confess just simply confess is the Greek word exomologio and if you just go and look up I mean you can go to like uh, blueletterbible.com, which is an online uh, Greek-English um, study guide, and type in, you know, Philippians 2, 10 through 11. This verse will come up, uh, and then it breaks every English word down into the Greek word. You'll notice, will confess is exomologio. If you click on that, you'll get a definition that says, and this is the A. So there's an A and a B and a C. The A 
translation. This is the top level translation of eximologio is this, to acknowledge openly and joyfully. So again, that is a radically different way of translating that verse. And so it makes you wonder why, what would make a translator of that verse who knows that eximologio should be exuberantly, joyfully, openly confessing something, simply say, confess. Mm -hmm. Well, probably because it fits in the theology of, it's not one day we're all going to be saved. It's not one day we're all going to joyfully realize that Jesus is our Lord. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, we would rather that it say that one day those sinners are going to realize they were wrong and then they're going to get theirs. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, that's that's a very subtle shift in translation, but it makes a big difference. Oh, it absolutely does. I mean, you begin to shift the way that, that, that we hear kind of the Christian heartbeat and the Christian narrative. And, and even in these, I mean, yeah, it begins to change your mind. Well, you know, this is, eh, it may not yeah. be great, but I got to push through it and I have the grit to get this yeah. kind of, and, 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 and as opposed to like stealing the joy out of this, stealing the joy yeah. out of what it means to be able to know um, Christ in this. Yes. And, and let me ask you this. So you, you, are, you are six books in. Yes. On the Jesus Un series, mm-hmm. um, best-selling books, and is this is is some of this the heart of what you're after? Is 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 showing people, which I, I you say this often in your books, anyways, but is showing people, you know, that we're seeing this incorrectly. We've been yeah. told this incorrectly, and it's here. It's right here. Is that is that yeah. is this some of that that heart and that motivation, Keith? Oh man, absolutely. It really is. I mean, when I, cause when I'm studying stuff for myself and I re, I see these things, it's sort of like, well, man, I wish I'd have known that. I wish when I was a young Christian, someone had told me, oh, by the way, did you know that this verse doesn't say that? It says this. Did you know there's a word missing? Or did you know that the church taught this for 500 years? And oh, I had no idea. So, you know, uh, when I'm writing my books, yes, my goal is, that's why it's called Jesus Un, right? I feel like Jesus, we have we, through our theology, our man-made theology, we have sort of like just globbed all this garbage onto Jesus that doesn't belong there. And so I feel like Jesus does need to be untangled and unbound and unveiled. And, um, you know, we we need to do this sort of un, unlearning process of stuff so, so that we can see the true Jesus, the real Jesus. And again, thank you for even pointing this out. Like, I'm basing all of this on scripture. People who attack me and say, oh, you don't really believe the Bible— uh, if it wasn't for the Bible, I would have no, I wouldn't have a book. Like, I'm, I'm going to the Bible to show you this is what it really says, um, not the stuff we were told. And so, yeah, that's that's my goal. And so at the end of the book, I, 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 it means so much to me. I've heard so many people after they've read my books, send me messages and thank me for the book and say that they are, they feel closer to Jesus and they, and they even have a, a deeper appreciation for the scriptures after reading my book, not less. I'm not moving people away from Jesus. I'm not moving people away from, uh, you know, uh, you know, honoring scripture. If anything, they they take it more seriously. Mm-hmm. And so that's my goal. And that's so far, that's been the result of, of a lot of what I, I hear people coming back to me anyway, um, that that's what it's doing. So yeah, that's been my goal. Well, that's, I mean, and it feels like that to where you're kind of, I, at least the way I've kind of seen it, is, is is recapturing the gospel, recapturing the mystery of this, recapturing the beauty of this, the freedom of this. Yes. Because so often we've done this, we've shackled this, we've 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 weighed all of this down. This is very very heavy. Um, yeah. We've we made we've made Christianity very burdensome. Um, yes, absolutely, man. If the end result, if the end result of your connection with Jesus isn't more freedom, 
more joy, more life. Like, isn't that what he said he came to bring us? Life abundantly, right? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And yet, that's not the impression I got when I was growing up. It was like, oh, look, there's Jesus to remind you of your sins. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> he's never, he's not really, he never really takes them away. I'm never actually free of them. I'm never actually, you know what I mean, um, get to get to live my life um, without having to even think about sin. It's like, no, no, you better be managing your sins. That's kind of what it's all about. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so much of our theology, it, it is about keeping us enslaved or mm-hmm. under control you know, your big red flag should be anything that involves shame or guilt mm-hmm. or fear. Yeah. Um, those are the things. And so, yeah, hopefully, hopefully the end result of your connection with Christ is more freedom, more joy, more life, more love, all of that. And uh, that's what we should be headed towards. I, I would, I, I prefer a, y- a lighter yoke. That's kind of, <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> that's my I feeling. Really do like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah I do. Now, now, now today, or at least we're saying this is today, uh, today <laughs> on the air, it's, it's March 23rd. What? We're yes. not recording this earlier or anything, but yes, it's no, March no, 23rd. This is beautiful. <laughs> it's a wonderful day in March. The weather in Chapel Hill and Carborough is gorgeous. Spring is on the air. Probably should be. Um, and yeah, it just so happens as we're dropping this, Keith, you have a new book coming out today. Also on top of this, what? Yeah, that's right. And thank you. Thank you so much for mentioning that. Um, yeah, so I have a new book in the Jesus Un series. This is book number six. Uh, it's Jesus Unforsaken. Mm-hmm. Um, the subtitle is Substituting Divine Wrath with Unrelenting Love. And so if you couldn't guess from the subtitle, uh, the book is about penal substitutionary atonement theory. Mm-hmm. Um, which many Christians today believe is the gospel, even though it didn't get invented until the 1500s. Uh, I, my argument is that it's not only not the gospel, it's a pretty lousy atonement theory, mm. and I think we can do much, much better. And so uh, that's my, that's what I'm, that's what I'm focusing on in this new book. Um, Bruxy Cavey wrote the forward. I'm really excited about that, and um, excited about again helping us kind of um, rethink the cross and what is this all about. Uh, how should we think about the cross? And again, in ways that I, that should lead us towards more freedom and away from a focus on sin and guilt and what a worm I am and all that. Well, one of the things I, I do appreciate about the way that you write, and thankfully you had you have offered me a uh, a advanced copy of the book that I, I I'm going through that I am eh, I'm about halfway through and enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. I'm only halfway through because I got it like two days ago. So come on. Okay, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's not that I'm not enjoying it. I, I've actually been going through it pretty fast. I, I'm really, I really like it. But I also like how, one thing I want to compliment you uh, as an author is that you write in a way that is very accessible. Um, it's very easy. And it almost seems like you're just talking directly and walking us through something. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's, it, 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 you have a very methodical way that you walk through scripture. So it, it gets deep but it's deep in an easy way, so to speak. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like that you walk us through in a way where you're like, oh yeah, oh yeah. Because oftentimes when we get into all this and, and people may not be in love with theology or know about exegesis or the getting deep into stuff, but I feel like you make it easy for them. Like you don't need a seminary degree to read through your book. It's very much, here's how it goes. Yeah. So let's, t- let's, let's, I just want to deconstruct a seminary word for you. Penal substitutionary atonement for people that don't know what that means. It has nothing yep. to do with substituting penises. So, no, uh, no. no. <laughs> Let's get that out of the way. Yes. Okay. So, what Very is it? Just give us a little nutshell of the fun that, <laughs> that is PSA. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, because here's the thing. You're right. See, it's one of these one of those theological terms where the average Christian probably has never heard that term and doesn't even know what it is. But but there's a really great chance, even if you don't, if you even if you can't define the term, you probably have heard this, and you might even agree with it. You might even say, "I well, that's I believe that." So, um, penal substitutionary atonement theory is a, a theory of the atonement, which again, as I said, gets quite often confused with the gospel, um, and it's basically this idea. I, I, I'll first describe it the way they would describe it, because then I have another way that I would describe it that is not the way they would agree they, they would they would say it, but uh, but I think it would put a finer point on it. So uh, John Calvin in the 1500s um, sort of tweaked some existing atonement theories, uh, satisfaction theory, and things like that, and uh, put a sort of a judicial spin on it uh, on the idea of the atonement, where God is a judge. And Jesus is a lawyer, and you are the condemned. You and I are the accused and the condemned, um, you know, sinners who have broken God's law. And uh, there's a uh, punishment that has to be uh, has to be administered justly and rightly uh, because of the law. And that judgment and penalty is death, uh, or although actually eternal torture, not just death. Yeah. Uh, that gets. I don't know how that ends up in there, but it ends up in there anyway. And so Jesus. Um, suffers the penalty on the cross for you and I so that you and I can now, God can now love us and forgive us. Mm -hmm. Now, to many people, that makes a lot of sense. You've heard a lot of sermons on that, especially around Easter time, you know, Good Friday and Easter, we hear that a lot. And, um, but here's the thing. It's surprising, I think, to a lot of Christians to find out, wow, until the 1500s, that wasn't the main way people thought about the cross or the God, certainly not the gospel. And so these are the parts of that theory of the atonement. So the way I just described it, most Christians have no problem with it. Oh, that makes sense. But then when you really, let's really dive into what is that view really saying about God and about you and me? Mm -hmm. Well, what it's saying about God is God is primarily a God of wrath. Mm -hmm. God, God looks at you and me and he is disgusted and he is full of anger and wrath. And his primary reaction to you and I and our sinfulness in his wrath is I'm going to destroy them. And Jesus jumps in the way. No, Dad, don't do that. I'm going to save him. And he takes the he takes the beating uh, that was intended for you and I. And when and when when the father is finished beating the living crap out of his own son, the father kind of goes, ah, "You know what? I feel good now. I feel better. You know what? Come here, guys. Come here. I love you guys. Come on in." Um, and so it's sort of that that theology that this this is what's problematic with that theology that view of God sort of positions God, I mean, he's really no different than the angry volcano God. Yeah. The, the, the volcano God is angry. He's so full of anger. And what can we do to make him happy? I know. How about a virgin, innocent child? Mm. If we sacrifice a virgin, innocent child, then the angry volcano God's anger will be satisfied. The angry volcano God will calm down, and now he'll bless our crops, and he'll bless you know, our families, and everything will be good, and the disease will stop, or whatever's going bad. And that is so. So, if you accept Calvin's view of God, that you're really kind of saying that God is an angry God, and mm -hmm. and and it ends up being like, uh, I, I mean, to me, it ends up turning John three sixteen on its head. Yeah. It's not for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that none should perish. It's that God was so angry with the world that He wanted to destroy every last one of us, and Jesus jumped in to save us from His dad. Mm -hmm. Again. There are no scriptures that support the idea that what Jesus did was save us from the Father, mm -hmm. uh, or even that he saved us from the Father's wrath. Mm -hmm. We're saved from our own sins. We're set free from our sinfulness. 
uh, from our, the, our our sins, and that's a whole other conversation. But um, but anyway, penal substitution, I think, is something I would like to correct because really, it it gives us an idea of God that God is angry, that God does look at us, that He's disgusted with us, that this is primarily His response to us is wrath and anger. Um, and I think it, it's it not only is the wrong way of thinking of it. I think if you believe that, then you're going to miss what it's really about, which is so much better. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's I, I, I liked how you you're pointing out in in at least the first half of the book, and it's I I always appreciate finding authors that can articulate things I have been thinking um, in more succinct manners, um, because especially growing up in and around you mentioned earlier you were southern Southern Baptist, and I grew up yeah. around that as well too, and. Even later in life, um, I remember just being around churches like in my early 20s where it almost seemed as if you had the Old Testament and then you have where Paul takes over in the New Testament. And, and we are cool with that. But like Jesus, even though we like him for what he gets us, we kind of de-elevate Jesus. It almost kind of like yeah. dips down in that because eh, it's too nice, too lovey. I don't always know what to do with that. But we, all, we almost like we almost push Jesus down in that if we want to remain that God is somehow, I don't know, it almost seems like the way they handle this is that God has a drinking problem in the Old Testament. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's just, his cup's always pouring over. He's got wrath. He's going to go off and hit someone. And, yes. you know, and and but it's incredibly weird how that twists the, like you're mentioning, it twists the entire narrative of the gospel. <laughs> it makes yes. it, it makes it very gross. And, and I, it, make, it, it just makes it very hard and everything that has nothing to do with love. Um, right. So it's, it's amazing how easily that you can steal all of the love out of the gospel and still claim that there's a gospel. Right. Where's the good news? Yeah. And, and flat yeah. out people that really hardcore teach and believe penal substitution will even say, I mean, I've heard people like Piper and MacArthur say, mm -hmm. you can't give them the good news till you give them the bad news. Yep. And, and to that, I want to say, really? So how come when I read the book of Acts, I never see any of them ever giving the bad news. They just That's give true. the good news. Yes. Um, why is it all of a sudden now, after 1500, you have to give them the bad news first? Um, why isn't the good news just good news? And mm -hmm. so... Yeah, that, that, that is that is the issue. And then, again, the whole thing about the love of God, that's the other thing that gets the pushback, right? I mean, I've, I've flat out been told by other Christians, you know, you, I focus too much on the love of God. Or I talk <laughs> about love too much. Okay. And I'm like, how can I talk about love too much when God is love? Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, Paul says in Galatians, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Mm -hmm. You know, all that remains is faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Mm -hmm. I mean— Love seems to be the big thing. It's 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 Jesus' big thing. You know what is the greatest command? Love God and love your neighbors yourself. My, a new command I give you: love one another as I have loved you. It's it is about love. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I, again, Christians that want to push back against that, I go, well, no, no, no. It's not about love. Mm -hmm. Well, not in the, according to the New Testament. The New Testament seems to really say no. It really is about the love of God, and because of the love of God that transforms us we're transformed into people who can love God and love others the way Jesus loved us. Mm. And so if it's not about love, I think we've really missed the point. I think oftentimes we have. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of American Christianity has, has lost the plot in many, many different ways uh, according yeah. to that, because I was even going to ask you the question, but I think you already answered it was, I mean, if you think about it, what is the gospel? Once you remove the love, what, what are we left with? What are, what, what are we left with what people are pushing right now? And it just seems anger and hate and shame and guilt and, yeah. Everything Jesus came to stand against. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's like I, I alluded to this earlier. It, you're right. See, it's one of these things where 
okay, if that is what happened and that's what Jesus did, and again, again, I I don't agree with that's what happened, but even if you want to say that that is what happened, well, then now, today, um, there should be no more judgment. Like, why? Because God dealt with all of the wrath, all the judgment on the cross. So when I see Christians today, like on Twitter and Facebook, you know, saying things like, well, that earthquake or that tsunami, well, that's God's judgment against, well, I thought God was finished judging. I thought mm. he, he he poured his wrath on Jesus and he took away the sins of the world. And so why is God? So in other words, even if you embrace that view, it seems that God is never finished with wrath. He's mm. never finished with judgment. He's just always wrathfully, always his response when he, he looks at the earth and he goes, oh, I got to, I got to smite him again. I got another earthquake, send another tornado, send another flood um he's just still acting like nothing happened at the cross yeah. like the cross still doesn't seem to have really practically changed anything about who god is and what god is like um so again uh, i i don't i reject that view but it seems to me if you're going to embrace the view then be consistent and say mm. and god now isn't like he's not dealing with the humanity yeah. this way anymore and again this I, I try to point out in the book about that about how like we are so so fixated on sin. Like even the, you know, the beginning of the conversation about it, well, does Romans condemn homosexuality? Is it a sin or not? Why are we so focused on sins? Like if you really look at what God says, even in the Old Testament, but certainly in the New Testament, God's whole attitude towards sins is is they're forgiven, wiped them away. Father, forgive them. I know what they do. Well, I did. You know, the whole new covenant is I will remember their sins no longer. I will, I will surely not remember their sins anymore. Like God over and over and over again um, affirms to us in the scriptures that he's dealt with sin. He, he's done with it as far as east from the west, forgotten it. It's in the sea of forgetfulness. You know, Paul says, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.19, I love this verse, for God has in Christ not, he, he was in Christ, not counting our sins against us. Mm -hmm. So what was happening on the cross? Well, it wasn't him counting our sins against us. It was wiping it off. Mm -hmm. And and no no longer, you know, he's not keeping any of those counts anymore. Um, but instead was reconciling the world to himself. So we are, all the humanity has been reconciled because of the cross to, to God. And so if we're not living in that space where that reconciliation is our reality mm -hmm. then we missed it mm -hmm. we don't even really believe that anything was really accomplished at the cross well it's it's almost as if the especially with the churches i've been around i feel like that you you make people so obsessed with being afraid of sin that all yes. you look for in the world is sin either in yourself or in other people and it almost just keeps us looking down and we don't look up you know we never see what is god doing in the world today i don't know i just see sin everywhere you know right yeah and you know what i i, I shared this story in the book there was a there was a lady a couple of years ago we were doing a house church in idaho and uh, my apologies if she's listening, but because I, I don't mean this, and I, I keep her anonymous in the book, but uh, I, and I don't mean to put her down because she's just an example. Like uh, she represents many Christians, but she was telling us that you know she said I feel like God's giving me this gift where anytime I'm talking to another Christian, I can just see their sin. God just shows me their sin, and and I'm like, oh boy, this is fun. Um, and I just so I listened to her, and then I just I really felt like the Holy Spirit gave me a, a way to respond to her, and I just said, I said, you know, here's the thing. If you come into our gathering and what you're looking for is our sin or my sin, you're going to find it. I promise you. If you're looking for it, I mean, I can give you a long list. There's plenty of things to find if you're going to be looking for sin. So if that's what you're looking for, that's what you're going to find. So so if we know that about ourselves, the thing you're looking for, 
that's what you're going to see? What if instead of looking for our sins, what if instead we looked for Christ in one another? Yeah. What if I, every time I looked at somebody, I was looking to see Christ in them. And when I saw it, I would stop and go, hey, you know what? I just saw Jesus in you. Oh, that was beautiful. What if we all encouraged one another when we saw Christ in one another? That to me is what we should be focused on, not on the sin. Yeah. And and because we're so sin focused, that's all we see, mm-hmm. and and it keeps us in this place of seeing ourselves primarily as worms and sinners and wretches and all that, um, who are never really truly absolutely forgiven ever. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just always you know always this way, but, but instead to see let's see Christ in one another and encourage that. Let's fan that into flame. Let's you know let's help one another see and live Christ in, in our own lives. That really I think is what we're supposed to be focused on. To be honest. No, no, I, I think I think that is a great way to be able to handle that is to be able to see. And I've I've often asked people this, like, what is the trajectory of your belief? You know, where where does that take you? Like, where is that moving? Like, where is that like you know five miles down the road? Is yeah. it is that taking you closer to God, or is it just making you more of an a hole? You know, I, I don't right. you know, or just making you more loathe yourself more. I mean, or you know, either way, and and it's and it's gross. But I appreciate <laughs> how you're yeah. trying to free us. You're trying to free us in our minds and the way we look at the scriptures for this. So, Keith, yeah. your book comes out today. Yep. Your book, book comes out today. If people want to be able to find it, they need to find Jesus Unforsaken, Keith Giles. Amazon, is that the best place you want them to go to? That's the best place, yeah. It can, it's available on, today on Kindle and in print, and hopefully in a couple of months it'll be available on Audible. Uh, all my other books are available on audio, uh, uh, Audible as well. Mm-hmm. And, and I also, by the way, if you're really interested, um, in next month in April, I'm doing a three-week course, an online course, where we're going to read through the book, Jesus Unforsaken, together. Just take it a chapter at a time, uh, an idea at a time. And every day there'll be, you know, do like a, a short daily lecture. We'll read a chapter together and talk about it together and just walk through this whole question of what is the cross? Why did Jesus have to die? What, what, How should we really approach the, um, the crucifixion, the incarnation, the resurrection, the whole thing? And um, yeah, if anybody's curious about that, you can find information about that on my blog at keithchiles.com or I'm sharing it also on my Facebook and Twitter accounts as well. Mm-hmm. So well, Keith, and also if people want to catch you, uh, Heretic Happy Hour, you're always over there as well too. Yeah, I, I co-host the Heretic Happy Hour podcast uh, and I'm also starting a new podcast um, in the month of March. Um, I, I can't believe I'm adding another thing to my pile. <laughs> Uh, but I'm doing a podcast um, with Peace Catalyst International. So it's it's the Peace Catalyst podcast. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's a podcast focused on really helping us as Christians um, walk out this idea of being ambassadors of reconciliation, recognizing mm-hmm. we've been given that ministry of reconciliation. We are to be called peacemakers if we're going to be followers of Jesus. And then how do we do that? Practically, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. So you can also find that. Actually, I think that actually launches today as well, the okay. uh, Peace Catalyst podcast. So check okay. that out too. That's exciting. That's exciting, Keith. Well, Keith, I just is is if you haven't already heard this on our show today, I, I appreciate your heart and the work that you're doing. I, I really appreciate how deeply you care about the gospel and how deeply you care about other people getting to see the gospel and the way the gospel needs to be seen. Yeah. Um, and and I am excited about this. I'm excited to finish the book. Uh, and I'm excited. <laughs> are, is there going to be an eighth Jesus on eighth, or we, am I getting too far ahead on you? you no, know, actually. So so this is book six. Oh, sick. Am I getting have you? <laughs> Okay. Yeah, yeah. And okay. book seven, okay. which hopefully will come out later this year, near the end of this year, if I can get it finished, will be the last one in the series. That'll be Jesus Unarmed, and that'll talk. be looking at Jesus as the Prince of Peace and nonviolence and all that. Mm-hmm. I love it. I and love then it. we're going to stop. I'm going to wrap it up. No more Jesus Un books. We'll finish up the Jesus Un series, mm-hmm. and then I've already got my next book already planned for what's after that. 
Awesome, awesome. Well, Keith, I'm excited about what's happening. If people want to find you, you can find you online, Keith Giles. You write, you're podcasting, your books, everywhere else. So yes, Keith, <laughs> I'm excited about what's happening and I'm excited about what's next too. But thank you so much for your time and being on the show today, Keith. Uh, Stuart, thank you so much, man. It's been a blessing. Awesome. Much thanks for Keith being on the show today. And without much time left, I'm going to just get to it before I send you off. Just a reminder, just a reminder that as I release you, into the wild, wide world, I send you out with the holiest amount of grace and peace and snark. Go out and make a difference into the world. We'll make this world a better place. And go check out Keith Giles' new book because that's what you just listened to for the last hour. So come on, come on, and I'll catch you guys again next week. I'm out of here. Peace. <laughs>